You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The scripture reading is from Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against the message that I'll tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in the breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on a sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation published through Nineveh, but the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord for the church and is given for a good. Thanks, Rafa. Let's, uh, would you pray with me first, and then we'll turn our attention to some reflections on this passage. Let's pray, though. Our Father, we come again into this room and open up your word and ask that you speak. If you are to remain quiet, we are without hope, but we know throughout the history of your interactions with your people, it's through your word you speak, you grant hope, you grant life, you grant joy. So please, Father, send your spirit upon this room that we might hear your word preached, and in hearing your word preached, have a real encounter with the resurrected Christ by your spirit. And we might find ourselves caught up with all the saints that are around your throne and with your church around the world in worshiping you rightly even this day. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, again, it's good to see everybody. Uh, I haven't missed too many Sundays at this church. It was a little strange to be away last week, but I heard Lyndon's sermon, and it was, it was quite excellent. Um, We're continuing the sermon series, a very brief sermon series, in looking at this prophet Jonah. Again, he's writing sometime around 800 B.C. And just to put that in your kind of timetable, this is probably 200 years before Buddha even uh, is alive. And we kicked off this series some two weeks ago. And the reason I thought it would be good to use this season of our church's life to look at the prophet Jonah is, um, it's not as though COVID's over, but we are entering into this sort of new chapter of living with COVID and sort of progressing away from the, uh, the shutdowns of COVID. And so much of our life was about surviving for much of the pandemic. Uh, even when we realized that, for, for better or worse, the majority of us were likely to get sick, but probably not die. 
there was still a lot of survival that was in our mind, financial survival, watching over our retirement accounts, uh, relational survival, how are we going to survive you know, friendships that are so hard to cultivate. And as a church, much of our identity got wrapped up as well with how do we survive as a church? How do we maintain uh, a, a faithful presence of Jesus Christ in this neighborhood through a season when we couldn't meet together? And even when we can meet together, we pose a risk of getting each other sick. And I really felt that as we, trans- as we move from the summer into the rhythms of the school year, whether or not you're going to school, uh, it was a good time to refocus our minds and hearts on what God's mission and God's heart is for the world. And no, no small book in the Bible talks about this better than the prophet Jonah. And that's what we've been going after. You remember in Jonah chapter 1, God gives a very clear call to Jonah to go to the city Nineveh. And Jonah literally goes into the farthest conceivable direction, the opposite way uh, to God's call. But God doesn't give up. He pursues Jonah. He uh, sends a storm Uh, which Jonah might see as God's curse upon him, but the storm uh, is ultimately an act of God's aggressive grace, and he's thrown overboard from the ship, ends up in some large sea creature's stomach, in some mysterious way survives, and it's there he cries out to the Lord, as Lyndon preached on last week, and he comes to his senses, and the Lord has this sea creature vomit Jonah up to the shore. And in this passage, what we're going to see is that Jonah, again, gets reminded of the very heart of God. And rather than running from the heart that God has and the the passions that God has, Jonah is going to obey the call. Somewhat reluctantly, we'll find out in chapter 4, but he's going to join God in his mission that all people might be restored in a relationship, a right relationship with their creator. So here's what I want to look at this morning is I want to look at if, if, if Jonah's being called into this mission that God is on, if he's, being in, if he's not only experienced God's presence, but he's now been invited into God's purposes and into this mission. Here's what I want to look at this morning. I want to look at the foundation of this mission, the form of this mission, and the fruit of this mission. So the foundation of this mission, the form of this mission, and the fruit of this mission. And uh, I'll watch the time. I can get wound up about a couple of these things, but I'll stay focused. So let's talk about the foundation of the mission. And where do we find uh, the sort of foundation, the, the structure that, that Jonah sort of stands upon as he gets sent out to join God in his calling into this world? Where do we see this foundation? Well, we see it in these first two verses where the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. And with virtually identical language, uh, the word comes to Jonah again. He gets a second chance. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. This is the exact same calling from God that Jonah had in chapter 1. If you have your Bible open, you can flip open to chapter 1. And other than one small detail, it's the exact same call. But what has changed about God's call to Jonah? Nothing has changed about the words God used, but something drastic has changed about the man Jonah, who is now hearing and receiving this call. And that change that has gone, taken place in Jonah is, is going to be the foundation for his, him joining God in this mission. And it will be the same foundation for you and me, as we think about what God might call us to do in our time in this part of the city. And what is that, that, what has happened to Jonah? Well, this was a man under the sentence of death. In fact, he was as good as dead. He was cast in a storm, thrown overboard, taken in an animal, a sea creature, brought down to the lowest parts of the earth. He's as good as dead. This is a man who has a sentence of death over his head because he had run from God. He had disobeyed God. And he had received the right punishment for that. Cast overboard, swallowed in the belly of a fish, brought to the bottom of the sea. 
But something has changed in Jonah. At his low point, while he was dead in his trespasses and sins, it's as though he comes to his senses and he's born again. It's as though that big, large sea creature vomits him out and it's like he goes through the birth canal again. And here he is on dry land, a new man. A man who's been born anew, born afresh. And this is the foundation for mission. Maybe I'll use a word that's somewhat trendy that I'm, I'm not a big fan of being thrown around as often as it is. But Jonah is a traumatized man. This is a man who has run from God to the point that it brought death upon his life. And from death, he's been restored to life. And here he is now on dry ground. And he's saying, what does it mean? What do I do? What must I, how, how must I live? What does it mean to be human? It's as though he's, he's born anew like a little child. He's got to rethink all his categories. But there's one thing he knows for sure, and it's this. He, it might be begrudging obedience, but he's not running from God again. He will not do that again because that is the path to death, a path that he will not follow. This is the foundation for any mission, any, any joining of God in his mission. God creates Adam and Eve in this perfect world, and they fail. And from that point on, anyone who wants to join God and his plans to restore and make beautiful this world that is so abused and so subject to decay and futility is going to have to go through this experience of knowing they've had a sentence of death and tasting of new life. This is what the church is, this kind of collective trauma, and it shouldn't surprise us. Who in our world makes the biggest impact, let's say, to fight drunk driving? Who is it? Mothers Against Drunk Drivers. Mad, right? And how was this organization founded? A bunch of angry mothers who had gone through the trauma of losing a loved one. Who said, it's not going to happen again. We're going to fight it with all of our might. Out of that collective trauma, they became people on a mission to kill drunk driving, to stop drunk driving, to make sure it doesn't happen again. Friends, this is what the church is. You wonder why we're a bunch of people that just feel overwhelmed with emotions sometimes. Some of us are somewhat awkward. We're a group of people who have collectively acknowledged we lived under a sentence of death. We, we know what it feels like to be running from God and for him to interject in his kindness, open our eyes to see the folly of our ways. We know what it feels like in some senses to be pushed through this spiritual birth canal and come out again and say, what does it even mean to be human? What should I do with my life? How do I love my neighbors? How do I love my spouse? How do I honor God with my life? We know what it feels like. This is what the church is. I don't talk about it often, but I can remember it like it was yesterday. A 16-year-old boy with his cool little sports car that he worked so hard for, making poor decisions in life, trying his best to, to, to live two parallel lives at the exact same time and keep them sort of firewalled one from another. And within minutes of making a decision that would have drastically changed my life, while in my car, making a decision, heading a place that would have gotten me in some significant trouble and would have certainly changed the course of my life. The Lord intervened. The Lord intervened. And I knew when I turned my car around and actually drove to a youth pastor's house, I knew at that moment something had happened. I had been running from God, trying my best to insulate these sort of two lives. The Lord called me out on it. And in a sense, he saved me. He rescued me from a, a path of nothing but destruction. I remember it like it's yesterday. And it's based out of that, that sort of angst and pain and maybe lowercase t trauma of knowing what it feels like to say, had the Lord not intervened, I would have been a path, I would have been on a path not only just of destruction of myself, but of many others. But the Lord intervened. 
This is what it means to be the people of God. And this is the foundation for our mission to reach out to our neighbors. Our, our, the foundation isn't some sort, of, some sort of superiority or even some sort of intense piety. That we've got our act together, therefore we're going to go show others how they too can have their act together. No! We're a group of people who know what it feels like to be running away from the Lord. Know what it feels like to have a sentence of death over our head. And for the Lord to intervene. And it's based out of that collective experience. We become the people who join God in his mission. This is the foundation, the mission. Let me just say one thing. We're, there are some people going through some hard times in their life right now. Hard times. And if you feel like you're the only one in this church, I assure you. There's, we could start a survivor's club, but it would be like half the church. So we'll just call it Sunday worship. God's not going to waste these moments. He really won't. And I assure you, these pain that, this pain that you're going through, these things will not be wasted. And from this, this, we will understand our identity of the people of God, a people who've been rescued, a people who learn that all I have is Christ, as we just sung. We'll join with Jonah, even if our obedience is sometimes reluctant, and following God in his mission. This is the foundation of mission. The Lord is up to something in our church. Based on the pain of this season, I assure you, special things are ahead. This is the foundation of mission. I told you I could get wound up, and I wasn't even thinking of that point. So let's get to the form of mission so I can really get wound up. So what does mission look like? What's the form of mission? Well, we see this clearly in the way in which um, Jonah knows he must obey God. Verses 2 through 4, God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Noah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, what is the, the form of mission? And here I'm thinking more of like the pattern or the template with which we participate in God's mission. What is the form we see in this particular passage? Well, we have to say at the very least, Jonah understands that if he's going to obey God's call, he's received God's word, but if he's going to actually obey what God has called him to do. You know what he's going to have to do? He knows he's going to have to be present with the people. It's not a hard argument. How far, how far around the city is it? About how big of a city is it? It's a three days journey. And he walks for a day. What does that mean? It means he's not on the outside of the gate saying, Nineveh is about to be destroyed. He knew if he wanted to be faithful and obedient to God's call, even though his obedience is reluctant, even though he's trying to do the bare minimum, he knows he has to be present with the people. He journeys a day to get into the heart of the city. And this shouldn't surprise us. The God who had made himself known to Israel didn't make himself known simply from the clouds, but he came and dwelled with them in a temple and drew very near. And Jonah knew that. And he knew for him to rightly be the prophet of God, joining God in his mission to the city of Nineveh, he had to be present but it's not just that he has to be present. He also has to walk into the city, be present in the city, but he has to file something of a protest. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The shortest sermon with the biggest effect. Five words, actually, if you're reading in Hebrew. Some of you are thinking, wow, I wish this guy could pull off a five-word sermon. Five-word sermon. But what is the, what's at the heart of it? He's registering some kind of protest. He's saying this, judgment is coming. Your days are numbered. Quit running this way. It shouldn't be surprised, and there's even a bit of a play on words. It comes out nicely in English. Jonah says your city's going to be overthrown. Who was previously overthrown? Jonah, thrown over the ship. He's saying, listen, the days are coming. He's present, 
He makes known this protest from God. Quit running from God. Jonah, the man who ran from God as far as he could, who had to be thrown over a ship before he could be rescued, is saying, here, listen closely. I'm in your presence. Here's what is going to happen. Judgment is coming. Protest, presence. But we could also say that Jonah says, or at least gives the hint, that there's a possibility for peace. Now, this isn't immediately obvious, and there's something of a double entendre when uh, you see this phrase, shall be overthrown in English. The, the word certainly means overthrown, but it can also mean transformed. And it seems as though what Jonah is saying is this. 40 days, your city's not going to look the same as it looks right now. He's obviously wishing Jonah is and hoping that looks like judgment being rained down on the city. But Jonah knows full and well there's another way that the city could be transformed. It could be transformed through repentance, through obedience. And you know how he knows that? Because he was in the bottom of that fish. He was in the very depths, the lows of the lows, and he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord utterly transformed him. The chaos of the waters vomited onto dry land to experience peace. And he's saying to the people, though Jonah doesn't want to, there is a judgment coming. He's filing this protest, but he's given them hints. There's a possibility for peace. Presence, protest, peace. Maybe I could say it this way. This is, as I've thought about this, this is something of a, of a waltz, a th- three-step dance where God's people are at their best. They're present. They protest. They become agents of peace. If you don't like waltzing, we'll say it's a three-stroke engine. There, and I think I have all, all stereotypes covered. Now, why is this important? Because I think there's some in our church that really need to work on one or two of these elements. Some of you are out there waltzing, and you're so heavy with your left foot, you're, you're making your dance partner look foolish, you know? Um, the, the engine can't really run on two strokes if it's a three-stroke engine for very long. Some of you need to think about what it means to be present. What does it mean to be present with the area that God has called you to serve, the sort, of, the sort of mission God has us on? What does it mean to be present? And let me just say that here we are in the east end of Toronto. When we thought about planting this church, one of the biggest stats that really rang true to us was there hadn't been any English-speaking church still running, at least that we could find, that was planted prior to World War II. And what was more interesting is I begin to know other churches in the East End and think through what was going on in this particular area of, Tro- of Toronto. I heard stories of Sunday schools that previously had a thousand students in those Sunday schools now have been reduced to next to nothing. And why was it? Well, as much as I wanted to say these churches had gotten everything wrong and I was going to come in and do all things right, that just certainly wasn't the case. The Christian community, for whatever reason, during a season of our lives, in large part for larger houses and better schools, vacated certain neighborhoods of cities. And the East End was one of those. Everyone here that was going to these churches drained out and went to various suburbs. And because these people left, a lot of churches were started around various suburbs around the GTA. But there's something about presence. And if you're thinking of leaving, selling your home, maybe moving to a bigger home, that's fine. You need to wrestle through these things with the Lord. But the Lord calls you to be present with those people who are here. And if you're here and you feel a burden saying, who will represent God's love for these people well? And you're just not sure who can do that, and yet you plan to vacate the city? You need to think hard what it means to be present with people. It's quite easy to be someone who protests against sin and who becomes an agent of peace from afar. 
using your Facebook platform to, to share these things, to pass judgment on people and to offer salvation. It's very hard to be near people, to be involved in their life, to see them day in and day out and cultivate a relationship. Some of you need to think about your commitment to your presence, to your neighbors, to the various institutions that make an impact on our city, to the, to the various structures of our city that need Christian presence there. Some of you need to really think hard about that, but some of you need to think hard about protest. Some of you are waltzing away and you don't even want to dare the protest, and so you're just going, I don't really know how waltzing works, but my guess is if you're only taking two steps, you're just going to vector way, way off course. Listen, I can't be the only one who does not find it fun to talk about moral issues in the city. In fact, like when my neighbors want to bring up something like abortion, I'd rather talk about best hemorrhoid creams, right? You know, there is a million things on the list that I'd, I'd much rather deal with. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, people in our city want to think about these things. They want to talk about it, and I'll tell you how you know. Put a couple beers in most of our neighbors, and they'll start asking you questions about these things. They can't ask it to you while they're, while they're clearly thinking. When they're a little tipsy, they'll throw it your way. They want to know. And I know I can't be the only person who finds myself so troubled, stuttering, bumbling through my words when, it, when I begin to talk about things like sexual ethics or medical ethics. I just think this conversation is fraught with too many landmines. I feel awkward. I feel embarrassed. I feel ashamed of what other Christians have said. I just don't know what to do. I can't be the only one who feels this way. But you know what happens over time when you feel this way and you don't fight against it? when you don't realize that this three-stroke engine needs protest as well, you start to believe that the goal of the church is to not hurt anybody's feelings and to tell them about Jesus so that over time they'll come to know Jesus and then maybe he'll deal with this sin issue. I don't know that this is what the church has ever been called to do. Listen, I understand it's complicated. That's part of the reason we're doing this medical ethics seminar. That's part of the reason we're trying to talk about these things as much as we can. But friends, sin is real. And it's destroying people in our city. It's destroying relationships. People are on a course like Jonah, running as far away from God as possible, and their lives are miserable because of it, and they try their best every day to convince themselves things are fine. And when they don't feel like things are fine, they medicate away the pain. You and I both know it. Sin is harming people. And if people are being harmed by sin, if they're being harmed by running away from God, then this is no time to be silent. I get it. It's going to be extremely complicated, and some of the issues they want to talk about, I'm not really sure how to move forward in a healthy way. It's probably a lot of this is going to have to do with relationship and wisdom and patient interaction. But I'm telling you, this is no time to be silent. You know why? Because if we bear the name of Christ, we have to say we are a people who know the trauma of running away from God as hard as we can. We know the pain that comes with that life, but we also know what it feels like to turn to the Lord and to feel as though we've been born anew, born again. Some of you need to work on protest. And as a church, I assure you, we need to continue to work on what it means to be agents of peace. It's not hard to be present and to speak against evils. We could hold signs down at Dundas Square with the rest of them. Feel like we're joining God in his mission. It's really hard to be an agent of peace. To work for the good of our neighbors to say, I want my neighbors, especially the neighbors maybe who live in the high-rises, who are new to our country, who lack the resources many of us do, I want their kids to have the same opportunities as my kids. I don't want them to be victims of injustice. 
I want them to live in a good city that I would want to raise my kids in. Part of the call of God's church has always been to be agents of this peace, what the Hebrew Bible calls shalom. Constantly working, not just to bring peace relationally with our neighbors, doing our best to be agents of peace, but to bring peace in the city where injustice is flourishing, where people are being wronged, where people are being neglected. This is part of why, and it's a very small step, we've been raising these backpacks for these kids out of the Scott Mission whose parents won't be able to send them to school with any supplies. That, that can't happen. Not, not for a group of people who want this city to feel the peace of Christ. It's part of why we've got to work hard to develop a diaconate in this next year. That's going to look for the collective pain and needs of this church where they lack peace and try to meet them, but also stimulate and stir up our church to be agents of peace to all of our neighbors. The various ways in which our neighbors are in need to challenge us as a church to use our resources of time and energy to move forward. I told you I'd go along. I'll try to calm down. Hear me out. Presence. Protest. Peace. Any church that makes any impact in any area I've ever seen includes all three of those things being done very well, like a three-stroke engine. They're all feeding into one another. People are moving closer and closer and closer to one another. The protest is becoming more and more sharp and clear not abstract and vague, and the peace is becoming more tangible. Let's, let's finally look at the fruit of this mission. I'll be somewhat brief. What is the fruit of this mission? What is the fruit of Jonah's labor? It's unbelievable. The people from the least to the great hear the message and call for a fast. And not only that, we get detailed interactions of this king who responds to God's word much better than Jonah. Arising from his throne, removing his robes, putting himself in a posture of humiliation, of death, of ash, burnt. And what does he experience? As he's in the depths, the Lord lifts him up. It's as though he's born again. He's put back on that throne and now he uses his position of power and status to bring about good under his kingdom. This is what the fruit of mission is. People turn. They turn back to the Lord. They stop running with all their might away from him towards paths of destruction. They turn to the Lord. They experience his presence, his blessing, and they're invited into his purpose to join him in this mission. And what do we see towards the tail end of the verse? Some, some complicated phrases where it seems as though the Lord relents or the, the Lord relents or turns. I think the Bible's just doing its best to use the human language, language familiar to us, to explain how God uh, acted in this particular situation. The judgment was certain, but because of the depths of the king basically acknowledging his sentence of death and the opportunity for new life, the Lord turns back the judgment. It doesn't come as it has been planned. Now, in conclusion, this is a good story. The prophet Jonah is a good story. Makes for a good story. Made for Disney almost, you know? Really great story. In the, in the belly of the fish, vomited out. What's the point? What good is it going to do for us today? Listen, Jonah was originally written to a group of people who in some senses had ran as far away from God's purpose as possible. They, their, their nation had divided in a civil war. They continued to worship idols. And the Lord sent a great fish, a fish called the Assyrian nation, to swallow up this northern kingdom. And as they're reading about the prophet Jonah, they're scattered all throughout the ancient Near East. 
Figuring out what does it look like to have life with God apart from their temple, away from the land that was theirs and part of their rich identity and heritage. And in reading the story and in reading this chapter, they would have realized the Lord is saying, once you come to your senses, once you turn from your sins, that large fish, I will have it vomit you back up and put you back on your land. This would have been a source of great hope for the people of God. And as we know, the Lord does have the fish vomit them back. They do return to their land. And it shouldn't surprise us that after their time of exile is over, as they're living on their land, the second person of the Trinity decides to leave the comforts of heaven to experience the angst and animosity of what it means to take on flesh, to become a real human. The one who was never born experiences what it's like to be born. This is the foundation of God's salvation, the incarnation. But it doesn't stop there. What kind of mission do we see Jesus taking? Talk about presence. He couldn't be any more present. He came and, and dwelt with us. Wore skin just like us. Spoke our language. Understands our world. And what is he doing throughout all of his ministry? He's an agent of protest and peace. He's calling out the religious establishment especially. With those people who are running in the opposite direction from the Lord and they're using his word to do it. The Pharisees, the scribes. He's constantly protesting. But he's also constantly an agent of peace. Healing those who are experiencing no peace. Whether that be people with skin disorders or people who can't see. He's constantly bringing peace and good. He, this is the form of his mission. And what's the fruit of his mission? Well, ultimately, as he dies on that tree, his mission complete in some senses, on that tree, on that cross, as he hangs there, all the sins of the world absorbed in this one act, so that anyone, anyone who turns and says, Christ is my hope, Christ is my life, I will no longer run as far away from the purposes of God as possible. I have no clue how to run to the purposes of God, but all I know is one thing. Jesus died on the cross, and this is where my hope is found. So long as you join in that, oh, this is the fruit of his mission. Salvation to the ends of the earth are available and stretched out. Not just out there, but even in here, even now. Friends, this is our hope. This is why we assemble uh, every week. Our Lord invites us to taste of the fruit of his mission. And not just to experience the fruit, but to join in his purposes, being sent back out, being just like him, going back to love and serve the neighbors he has put in our way. This is our hope. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the prophet Jonah. And even though his obedience is quite reluctant, which we'll find later, his obedience and the response of the city reminds us that really the most reluctant and small obedience, one small act of faith in your hands is mighty. It could bring whole cities down. And here we are, a small church. Maybe we've even lost the courage to pray to you to ask that our whole city might be transformed by the love of Christ. That justice and peace and mercy might flourish in the city. That unfairness might be put away. Lord, we ask that you would use us. We thank you for the salvation we've tasted in Christ. Now make us agents of this mission with Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at christchurchtoronto.ca or email us at info at christchurchtoronto.ca.